Last time, uh, you might remember, we, we went through some sections from chapters 23 and 24, uh, and even some of the, the titles within, uh, at least my Bible, um, were, were miscellaneous laws. And so there was um, you know, a few bits from over here and a few bits from over there, and you know, some common theme, of course, God's justice being the ultimate undergirding theme of the entirety of uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Um, but nonetheless, it was a little bit disjointed, a few different themes uh, going on. Uh, this particular time, uh, though, once again, uh, some of the, uh, well, we're going to go through parts of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and 25, and some of that still has the title in my Bible of miscellaneous laws, uh, but I've chosen in preparation to, to pick on, as it were, uh, the sections which are to do with uh, marriage and divorce. Uh, and we, uh, the first part that we'll go through has to do specifically with divorce. Um, and, and later on, we'll go through the, uh, the, the curious, but uh, in further study, understandable practice of leveret marriage. Um, which, if that term is not immediately familiar with you, uh, you'll be more familiar by the end of the sermon, I hope. And some of us, or in fact probably all of us, are uh, more familiar with these particular sections which we'll go through today. Uh, oftentimes, not so much because we're familiar with Deuteronomy, but because we're familiar with the Gospels. Uh, and these texts are discussed by Jesus as he answers questions to the Pharisees who are trying to, to trip him up um, due to a, a popular debate that was going on between a couple of uh, rabbis of his time. So you'll be, you'll be familiar with those. And my plan is to focus perhaps a little less on the surface level of what's being said in these texts within Deuteronomy uh, and a little more on the, the foundations underneath. You might say the, the why behind the what. So the, the texts describe the what, they describe the situation, and I want to look at the, the why. Why does this actually matter? Why is this a thing uh, that is being discussed by, by Moses and subsequently Christ uh, and indeed us today? For example, uh, I quite often say with, with my son Silas, and, and to a lesser extent Joash, but that's only because of his lack of English speaking ability at the moment, uh, but we, we recite the fifth commandment together and I, I say, Silas, what's the fifth commandment? To which he almost always parrots back to me, honor your mummy and daddy. I'm not really sure that he knows what father and mother are, but mummy and daddy he's got. And subsequently, I might ask him to do something. Now the, the doing something is in a sense the, the what. I, I've asked him to do a thing and that's the, the surface level. The why behind it is because God in his word commands children to honor their mummy and daddy, to honor their, their father and mother. And part of doing that is to obey. So really, it has almost nothing to do with me. It's because God has said for, for in this case, Silas, my son, to do something that is the, the why behind the what of my surface level command. And that's the kind of thing that I want to do as we go through this text. Uh, so let's pray and then I'll read uh, the first section of the day from uh, Deuteronomy chapter 24. Lord, thank you for this word which you have put in front of us. Thank you. Uh, I'm reminded that we have such easy access, not only to the entirety of your word, uh, but also to seemingly countless 
seemingly countless resources which would aid us in our study of it. I pray that the, the comparative amazing freedom that we have to these resources would be commensurate with our level of study, our level of knowledge of your word. Um, to that end, Lord, may we uh, study deeply today as we go through this text and may we be um, better off for having done so. Not because of me, Lord, but because you have spoken to your people. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So Deuteronomy chapter four, sorry, 24, verses 1 to 4. And my Bible once again has laws concerning divorce as the, uh, the title. And it says this, When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. As an aside, you perhaps know that in the, the Old Testament text, when you see L-O-R-D, Lord, all in caps, uh, the original is, is Yahweh. That's the, the name of God which is being used. Um, I say that only because in my personal reading, I will say Yahweh to myself. So if ever we're reading through a text together and I say Yahweh, and you're like, Tobias, it says, Lord, you're reading very strangely there. That's why. So just to get that administratively out of the way. Um, but in, John MacArthur in his uh, study Bible comments on this section. Uh, and he says this, and I think it's really good for us to get under our belts before we go really any further. And it's just one sentence. He says, this passage does not command, commend, condone, or even suggest divorce. And so, uh, not that I think that we would, but if, God forbid, somebody was coming to this section or you know, sections like it, thinking, how can I weasel out of a marriage? Then you have not come to the text with the, the reason that it was written for. The text does not command, commend, condone, or even suggest divorce. And turn with me uh, in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 19. We'll read from it in just a second. The sequence that's described in our, our Deuteronomy text is this. Firstly, man and woman get married. Notice tacitly, man and woman. One man, one woman. Secondly, some indecency is found in the lady. Thirdly, a certificate of divorce is written. Fourthly, the lady marries another man. Fifthly, the second man hates her or dies. Uh, sixthly, the second man divorces her, or is dead. And seventhly, the former husband then may not marry the lady again because she has been defiled. This is an abomination to the Lord. And as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, this passage is discussed in uh, Matthew chapter 5, in Mark chapter 10, uh, and indeed in Matthew 19, where we'll read from in a second. But there are, are two 
very and I think vitally important facts for us to understand uh, from the Deuteronomy text before, uh, before anything further is said. And they are this, that firstly, some indecency is found in the lady, uh, in her first husband. And it is that indecency which predicates the subsequent divorce. Now, my, my Hebrew is not particularly good, uh, and it is, well, my Greek is slightly better, but even the Greek is not particularly good, so I had to look up what the, the Hebrew word was for indecency, and it is erva, which translates as nakedness, nudity, or shame, but in general, things relating to adultery. So when it says indecency, as I mentioned, there was a, a debate between two rabbis of Jesus' day, where we'll read in a second, the rabbi Shammai, who said that only divorce, sorry, only adultery could predicate divorce, and the rabbi Hillel, who basically advocated divorce for any reason. He interpreted uh, indecency in a way which I think is contrary to what the scripture says. And the example which you often hear said is that even if your, your wife should burn the toast, that that was a a reason that was justifiable for divorce. But the word, as I said, relates to nakedness, nudity, shame, all things relating to adultery. So it's that, that meaning of indecency, uh, which Christ our Lord will also bring, uh, that is the, the only permitted reason for divorce. And secondly, uh, what's important to understand that we probably don't realize today is that this law, we might read it on a surface level, but the law is a restraint on a common practice of that day, whereby wives would almost be treated as a, a commodity to be traded between men. And so when we say that the only reason that could justify divorce is adultery, that's a huge reining in from what is going on in, in the world around these people. And so we must understand that this law, in fact, uh, gives a, a far greater appreciation of both marriage and women than what was going on in the, uh, the lands around Israel of that day. But Matthew uh, chapter 9, verses 1 to 9, it says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? It's part of the, the debate that I said had been going on of the day. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Well, therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a, a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, here's Jesus teaching that the God-man himself, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. And of course, you're familiar that adultery is very specifically forbidden 
uh, within the Ten Commandments. So Jesus is pretty clearly saying you're not to divorce at all aside from adultery, because otherwise you will be being an adulterer yourself. Um, but I can't resist saying in passing, sometimes the, the things which are assumed within a, a biblical text can be most telling. Uh, Jesus says, speaking of the, the beginning, he says, therefore a man, well, firstly, that he made them male and female, not everything else, male and female. He goes on to say, therefore a man, one man, shall leave his father and his mother, one father, one mother, and hold fast to his one wife. So two things, well, several things we learn from that. Firstly, there is male and female. There are no other options. Secondly, marriage was only ever to be between one man and one woman. Though we see polygamy throughout the Old Testament where there are men with multiple wives, it is not something which was, it was something which was allowed by God, but not something which he specifically mandated when he gave marriage law. The two shall become one flesh, it says. So moving on. That's sort of the, the negative teaching, I, I guess you could say. You know, don't, don't divorce for any reason apart from adultery. But the, the positive side of this, once again, if we look to this text to try and find a way to justify divorce, we've missed the point. It's not the point of the text at all. The text makes it hard to divorce and marriage was always designed to be for life and always designed to be between two people, one man, one woman. Ephesians 5 verses 31 to 33, Paul starts by quoting Genesis 2, says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. He goes on to say, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And the fact that marriage refers to, to Christ and the church um, is, really gives the whole undergirding, the whole strength to the whole marriage covenant. Marriage is not merely a thing that, that humans do, which God decided to scatter a few laws about and make it difficult to absolve. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between God and his church. And I say this uh, knowing that uh, at least a few of you are, are single currently. And so I think in a sense, in a very real sense, you have an advantage over those of us who are married already because you have the opportunity to get this under your belts before the whole marriage thing starts. You have the opportunity to, to get this perspective, to strengthen, Lord willing, uh, marriages in the future. So marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ, the God of all, and his church. And so it ought to be, uh, in a very real sense, evangelistic. It ought to be something which we can uh, look, see, touch, and feel in a similar sense to how we, we take the Lord's Supper and it's this thing which we can look, see, taste and feel and we reflect on Christ's death. In a similar way, marriage ought to be this thing that the onlooking world can look at and say, right, 
the man playing the, the part of Christ. That is how much Christ loves his church. And similarly, looking at the lady can look at her and say, right, I understand that's how much the church loves their God, loves Christ. Similar to, to those verses I read at the start, the, the onlooking world should look at that picture, that visual picture, and say, I, I get it. That's how much God loves his people. That's how much his people love God. It is an evangelistic thing. Indeed, the, the strength of the love that, uh, that husbands are to have for their wives is described earlier in Ephesians 5 as the same as that which Christ has for his church, which as a husband, I can tell you, is a high calling and, and one that makes me a little nervous, one which I daily fall short at. Uh, but that, truly, really, that is what it says in the text. That's the intensity and the dedication of love that husbands are called to have for their wives. And you can imagine if, even in my own case, if I were truly to love my wife to that extent, that would be something which the onlooking world would look at and say, that is some amazing, dedicated, crazy kind of love. I want in on that. And so in further illustration of the value of marriage, that leads us on well to, to verse five of our Deuteronomy text. Uh, but the point of what I'm saying is that marriage is a picture of the deep, sacred and committed relationship that God has with his people and only adultery was permitted, is permitted and death uh, is permitted to separate that. So verse 5 of, of Deuteronomy chapter 24 says this, When a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He should be free at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. And Tom, a couple of weeks ago, uh, preached through Deuteronomy chapter 20 uh, regarding warfare, and he noted a few categories, a few things which were allowable for men to forego going to war. Uh, Moses now adds this one. So if he had a new house, if he planted a vineyard, if he was betrothed to a wife, or if he was, in general, fearful and faint-hearted, he was allowed to forego war. Additionally, if he was newly married, he was commanded by God to stay at home one year in order to, to work at the foundation of his marriage and to make his wife happy. That latter part, he should be free at home one year to be happy with his wife, as the ESV has it, uh, is translated in a couple of ways. And I say this partly for illustration and partly for your general amusement. Uh, the New International Version has, for one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he is married. The New American Standard has, he should be free at home for one year and shall make his wife whom he has taken happy. And the King James, which made me chuckled as I looked at it, says, but he shall be free at home one year and shall cheer up the wife which he hath taken. So it seems to me that the translators of the King James thought that the, uh, the wife had been hardly done by and that the husband should spend at least a year trying to cheer her up for uh, being married to the poor sod. But whichever way it's translated, there is to be a focus in this first year of laying a solid foundation of, the particularly the husband is in view, but of both parties working together to lay that solid foundation to make one another happy so that this marriage covenant, this relationship between God and his church 
is something which is laid on that amazing foundation and so builds and the fruit that comes from it uh, is in line with God's word and is fruitful. God is placing such a high value on marriage because it is a picture of him and the church. And because marriage and hence families that come from marriage, I think it's difficult to overstate this, marriage and the, the families that come from marriage are the core building blocks of society. Not just in numbers, but in establishing a godly culture, morality, and a whole godly system. And so the point, marriage ought to be valued and practical steps should be taken to cultivate and demonstrate this valuing. So flip over with me to Deuteronomy chapter 25. I want to read verses 5 to 10. And this is our, our curious section on leveret marriage. It says this, Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5 to 10. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate of the elders and say, My husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of his city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists, saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull his sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, So shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. That, to me, sounds like an entirely unappealing thing to occur, being slapped in the face with my sandal and, and spat at, but that aside. Uh, in short, this law on Leverite marriage, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but you stuck with me for this sermon at least. This law on Leverite marriage was designed to ensure that the land assigned to families in ancient Israel was kept within the tribes and indeed within the individual families that it was assigned to. So that, uh, coming back to what I said in the introduction, is really the, the why behind the what. This leveret marriage thing uh, with this curious system of, of perpetuating the family line was much less about the family line and much more about keeping the land which God had promised to families within those families. Indeed, a, a promised land was in many respects the, the goal of the whole of the Old Covenant. In some respects, it was that goal of, of that old system. The people were to, to go into the land, they were to conquer it, and they were to live at peace in, and plenty in as much as they obeyed God within that land. And don't turn to these because I'm just going to read a short section from each of them, but Genesis 12 uh, God tells Abram he will live in the land of the Canaanites. And verses 6 and 7 say, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak at Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. And in Exodus 3, uh, speaking to an enslaved Israel, 
in Egypt, God reiterates the promised land promise to Moses. Verses 16 and 17 say, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, bringing their minds back to that promise made to Abram, of Isaac and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 1 to 5, in speaking of the blessings associated with obedience to God and the land, uh, in short says that, that all you do will be blessed. Every part of your life will be blessed if you live in accordance with my ways. And verse 8 says, And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And subsequently, the curses ensue with verse 21 saying, The Lord will make the pestilence stick to you until he has consumed you off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And so there's this constant emphasis in, the, in discussing the, the Old Covenant promises and the goal of the Old Covenant, that this land was to be a place of peace and plenty where God's ways flourished and society benefited as a result. This land was a big deal to the Israelites and it was a big deal to God and something that he wanted to give to the Israelites as a result of their obedience. And so hence this lever at law coming back to our text uh, was significant because it was designed to preserve that land, the covenant goal, allotted to certain members of families. It sought to preserve the portion of the promised land that had been given to the same. And so as I said, it's not a, a mere matter of producing children or of uh, arbitrarily preserving some sort of a family name, but it's a matter of keeping this covenant goal within the families it had been allotted to. And to take uh, briefly just one step further back, and I assure you briefly, just a couple of minutes, the promised land and the whole old covenant system was to point to a greater reality being the new covenant, what we live in now. And what gives us hope for this whole thing is the fact that God does not change. God does not lie. And so if he has promised something, he will surely deliver it. The, uh, the new covenant was built upon better promises with a better mediator. And just as the, the old covenant had its goal of this, this physical land which the Israelites were to go into and to live in and to, to live at peace and plenty, so the new covenant has this ultimate goal of living in perfection, in eternal, uh, intimate communion with God in the new heavens and the new earth. Not something which was to, is going to take place for a particular period of time, but something which goes on forever, where we will live with all of God's people in joy, in peace, with all that we need. A truly something which I need to consider more, which no doubt would make me a more joyful and peaceful person. But Hebrews 8 verses 5 and 6, speaking of the old covenant, uh, the tent of meeting, the gifts and sacrifices for the priests, says that they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. 
For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And chapter 9, verse 15 speaks of the new covenant. It says, Therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So our hope in this promised eternal inheritance is the, the surest thing. Not only could you take it to the bank, but you could take it to the bank a billion times. You could take it to the bank indefinitely. And it's because that is based upon God's own character. It is impossible for God to lie, Hebrews 6 tells us. And Numbers 23.19 says, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. It rhetorically says, has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And so the point. Leveret marriage ultimately preserved God's old covenant land promise to families. It pointed towards his absolute faithfulness. The promised eternal inheritance of the new covenant is unshakably given to all God's people and is not lost for a lack of offspring. Indeed, it is never lost. So to bring it all to a close, uh, there was two main sections today, the first being on, on marriage and divorce, uh, the second on, on this law of leveret marriage. And the points were only threefold. Marriage is a picture of the deep, sacred and committed relationship God has with his people. Only adultery and death were permitted to separate it. Secondly, marriage ought to be valued. Practical steps should be taken to cultivate and demonstrate this valuing. Thirdly and lastly, marriage ultimately preserved God's old covenant land promise to families. It pointed towards his absolute faithfulness. The promised eternal inheritance of the new covenant is unshakably given to all God's people and is not lost for a lack of offspring. It's never lost. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this wonderful thing of marriage. And thank you that it is not something arbitrarily given. Indeed, it is not something which the world has or ought to have a bearing over. We thank you that it points to this magnificent relationship between you and your church. And so we pray for all rightly married couples, especially those who are Christian, that they would bear out their respective roles well so that their marriages would be truly evangelistic. And we thank you, Lord, for your great covenant faithfulness to your people. May we look forward ever more to that day when we are with you eternally, with all of your people in, in perfect harmony. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.